Good morning, church. I was way more introduction than I was deserving of. Um, it is hard to believe it's been a year, and I am so thankful. If I could pick a church to get to serve in for this type of role, I couldn't pick a better one. You guys have welcomed both Emily and I with open arms, become our friends, our family, our coworkers, and so we're deeply grateful to the Lord for you. And what Joe said about my wife is I tell people that I am not at all ashamed to say I'm sure they offered me this job so they got her too. And I'm fine with that. All right, well, before I jump in this morning, would you pray with me? Father, we are so grateful that we can gather here like this right now. Lord, there's a lot of things that go on during our weeks. A lot of job situations, family situations, just life situations. And yet, once a week, we gather as your people to sit under your word. Not because of the person on the platform, but because of the one who spoke this word. And we trust that your spirit is here and your spirit is working and that now as we open up your word that you will illumine our hearts to understand what is it that we're talking about and why does it matter. And so that's my prayer that you would not let us waste these minutes together, but that you would by your spirit work changes that only you can do. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, this morning I want you to imagine a scene with me. So it's not going to be hard. Imagine that it's a bright, sunny spring day here in Indianapolis. Sun's shining, birds are chirping. But then slowly as the day goes on, you notice the sky turns gray. And then it gets darker and darker. Some ominous-looking clouds start rolling in. Suddenly the temperature drops. And the wind picks up. And then suddenly you hear it, that loud, long wail piercing the air for miles around. Anybody know what that sound is? Tornado sirens. You guys are from the Midwest. Good. So if you're anywhere in the Midwest, you know what I'm talking about. But I want to take just a minute to remind us how amazing these inventions actually are. See, after years of scientific research and millions of dollars, we can now actually warn people ahead of time before they get hit by a tornado. Think about that. I mean, now we actually have up to 15 minutes that you can give people a warning time for. You know what we had before tornado sirens? We had your neighbor saying, hey, Bill, get in the house. There's a tornado coming. But now we have 15 minutes with which to tell people to prepare. Now, you guys know this, being from the Midwest, but when you hear the warning, there's only one simple instruction, right? Take shelter immediately. Seems easy enough. Detect danger, warn people, take refuge, everybody's safe. Great plan. But there's a problem. There's a big problem, actually, with tornado sirens. And I want to do a little experiment to see if I can show you what the problem is. So first, by show of hands, how many of you have ever heard a tornado siren in your life? Right, that's a good Indiana crowd. Now, second question. Think back when you heard those tornado sirens. When you heard them, how many of you immediately dropped everything you're doing and went right to shelter? <laughs> I think you guys are starting to see the problem with tornado sirens. The biggest problem with tornado sirens is getting us to pay attention to them. 
See, they can do a great job making sure we know there's a warning, but there's a big difference between knowing something and paying attention to it. See, paying attention doesn't just mean that you hear the siren. It doesn't even just mean that you understand what it's saying or believe what it's saying. Paying attention means that you respond appropriately. So with tornado sirens, we hear them, we know what they mean, but most of us, as evidence here, don't actually pay attention to them by seeking shelter. Now, believe it or not, this is actually such a big problem that the National Weather Service has done multiple studies on why you and I don't pay attention to these. Now, there's a lot of really interesting reasons given for why people don't, but what I found most fascinating was that underneath all the different reasons, experts boiled it down to two things that showed up again and again why you and I don't pay attention to tornado sirens. They were this. One, we question if the warnings are accurate, and two, we doubt whether they'll affect us. So we don't pay attention because we doubt whether they're true and whether they matter. And the more I thought about it, I realized, well, isn't that how we decide whether to pay attention to anything? Don't we ask ourselves, is this true and does it really matter? Think about a couple examples. First, your doctor tells you to take a certain medication for a condition you have. Most of us do that, right? Why? Because we think his diagnosis is true and it matters. But now let's look on the other side for a second. Why do you not pay attention to all those emails you keep getting from a prince in Nigeria telling you that he has millions of dollars to send you? You guys all got this to you? You don't because you doubt whether it's true. I hope, right? Okay. Well, what about this one? What about the speed limit? Now, nobody in this room doubts whether the speed limit is true. But occasionally, some of us may doubt whether following it will really affect us, whether it really matters, right? Don't raise your hands. But see, this is what I mean. When we question whether something's true or whether it matters, we don't pay attention to it. So paying attention to something means living like it's true and that it matters, like taking shelter when you hear a tornado siren. So you may be wondering, why am I telling you all this about tornado sirens? Well, this problem of making sure people pay attention is exactly the same sort of problem that Peter was facing when he wrote 2 Peter. In fact, if you wanted to sum up the message of that book, you could do it in two words. Pay attention. Because Peter knows that he's given them this incredibly important message, a matter of life and death. But his biggest concern is that they won't pay attention. They know it. They say they believe it. But will they pay attention? Now, this morning, we're going to look at what it is Peter wants them to pay attention to and why. And here's how we're going to do that. We're going to look at Peter's letter from three different angles. First, we're going to start with our wide-angle lens to get the big picture of 2 Peter. And what we're going to see there is Peter's main point, which is this. Pay attention to the promise of Christ's coming. So that's our first point. And for our second view, we're going to use our zoom lens and focus in on the passage that we read, chapter 1, verses 16 to 21. And there we're going to see that Peter wants him to pay attention to that promise because it's true. And finally, in our third view, we're going to go panoramic to see that he wants him to pay attention because it matters. So that's where we're going this morning. We're going to pay attention to the promise of Christ's coming, pay attention because it's true, 
and pay attention because it matters. So first, let's start by looking at what Peter wants them to pay attention to. Now, the first thing you notice if you look at 2 Peter is that he's not giving them a new message. He wants them to pay attention to something that they already know, something they've been told in the past. So we see this, for example, in chapter 1, verse 16. He said, we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you. So he's saying he and the apostles had already made something known. What he wants them to do now is what he says in chapter 1, verse 12. He says, I intend to always remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth you have. So you know them. I just want to remind you and help you pay attention. So that's what Peter wants to do. But then we need to ask, okay, but what is the message? What should they pay attention to? Well, here's a really helpful way to summarize Peter's message in three points. It's Jesus is Savior, Jesus is Lord, and Jesus is Judge. So first, Jesus is Savior. Wherever Peter went, this guy could not stop talking about how Jesus has rescued us through the cross. In fact, listen to him say it in some of his own words. He said, you were ransomed from the feudal ways you inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Now here in 2 Peter, in chapter 1, verse 3, he says the same thing this way. He says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. So what Peter's saying is, my message about Jesus ransoming you and burying your sins on the tree, it's a gospel of grace. Jesus has done it all and given it all, and therefore we confess that Jesus is Savior. Okay, so that's point one in Peter's message. The second point is not only is Jesus Savior, but Jesus is Lord. See, Peter always emphasized that when you believe that Jesus has saved you, your life will look different because he's now Lord. You won't keep living the same way that you have been. Instead, now you'll live a life of holiness and joyful obedience to the one who called you into his family. Here's how Peter said that. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Now, one of my favorite illustrations of this idea is actually from Augustine. Pastor Mark mentioned Augustine last week, if you were here, and it reminded me of one of my favorite stories about him. See, Augustine, if you remember, before Jesus saved him, lived a life of just horrible sexual immorality. But one day after Jesus had saved him and changed him, he was walking down the street in his town, and there he came across a prostitute that we'll say he was acquainted with. Now this prostitute saw him, knew who this guy was, and is thinking, oh, here's an opportunity to make some money. So she says in her most seductive voice, Augustine, it is I. And then I love his response. He says, yes, but it is not I. Do you get what he's saying? He's saying that I'm not who I was because Jesus saved me and changed me. And that's what Peter's trying to say here in his second point too. He's saying because Jesus has saved you, you will live like it's true. You'll live a life that shows Jesus is your Lord. 
Okay, so Jesus is Savior, Jesus is Lord, and then the third point of his message is Jesus is Judge. See, Peter always preaches that this same Jesus who died and rose again will come again one day to judge each and every person. And what he'll judge us on is not whether we raised a hand, whether we walked an aisle or prayed a prayer, but whether or not our lives showed evidence that Jesus has saved us and we followed him as Lord. Not did we say we believed, but did we show we believed? Did our conduct match our confession? Peter says it like this. He says that God judges impartially according to each one's deeds. Now, you may be getting nervous, and I need to be very clear here. Peter is not saying that your deeds are what save you. He would emphatically deny that and say, no, you are saved only by faith in Jesus. But what Peter is saying is that your deeds are what will be looked at to evaluate whether your faith is real. They are the evidence that you really did trust Jesus. Some of you may have heard that old line, if someone accused you of being a Christian, will there be enough evidence to convict you? Now, normally, I'm not a big fan of cliche phrases like that, but I have to admit, there's, it makes a good point, and I think it's making the same point Peter is here, because that evidence is what Peter's talking about when he says we'll be judged according to our deeds. And think back to that Augustine story again for a second. The fact that Augustine said no to that prostitute, that didn't make him a changed man, but it certainly did show that he was a changed man. Make sense? In the same way, the deeds Jesus will judge you on don't make you a Christian, but they do provide evidence whether or not you are one. Okay, now this judgment is going to affect two groups of people in radically different ways. First, for the group where Jesus finds no evidence that they ever lived like he is Savior and Lord, there will be condemnation and destruction. And for them, the idea that Jesus is judge should be horrifying. But for the other group, those who have truly put their hope in Jesus as Savior and Lord, they will rejoice when the judge comes. Well, why? Because Peter says that they have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Well, when's it being kept? It's being kept until Jesus the judge returns. And when Jesus comes back and sees the evidence of his grace at work in your life, I love what Peter says will happen in chapter 1, verse 11. He says, In this way, by Jesus seeing this evidence, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Friends, if you have trusted Jesus as Savior and Lord, when he comes back as judge, there's no condemnation waiting for you. What's waiting for you is a kingdom. So that's Peter's message. Jesus is Savior, Jesus is Lord, and Jesus is judge. So now hopefully you can see why for Peter, this idea that Jesus is coming back is a massive deal. What's at stake is entrance into that eternal kingdom. And that is precisely where we run into the problem that caused Peter to write this letter. See, there were others in the same place as his readers who were questioning that exact point, whether or not Jesus is coming back. 
Look at chapter 3, verse 3, and here's what Peter says about them. He says, Scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, Where is the promise of his coming? Ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Can't you just, you can hear the mocking in their voice saying, Look, he said he's coming, right? Where is he? I don't see him. And in fact, I don't see anything that looks any different than it did for our fathers, our forefathers, their forefathers. He's not coming back. But if that wasn't bad enough, the problem didn't stop there. See, these scoffers didn't just believe that Jesus was coming, was not coming back. These scoffers lived like he wasn't coming back. And this is an important truth that we need to remember because what you believe always shapes how you behave. So if you believe that Jesus is coming back, friends, you're going to live like it. But if like these scoffers, you believe he's not coming back, there is no judgment, well, then you're probably going to live like that. And that's exactly what these scoffers did. They figured if he's not coming back, it doesn't really matter how I live. So Peter says that instead of following Jesus, they followed their own sinful desires. And here's how he describes them in chapter 2. He says they were greedy, they exploited people, they rejected authority, and they slept with whoever they wanted. Peter says they were like irrational animals. He says they were insatiable for sin. They just couldn't get enough of it. But not only that, they enticed others to follow in their footsteps, to live the same way. Peter says in 2.19 that they promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. Now here's the worst part. These people that Peter's talking about, they all claim to be Christians. See, these weren't those wicked people out there. These were people inside the church, some who even held teaching positions. See, they were fine being associated with Jesus. They just picked which parts of the message they liked. So they said, let's see, grace? Yeah, I'll take some of that. And free forgiveness of sins? Yes, please. Oh, but this idea that Jesus is coming back to judge everyone? No thanks, I'm gonna pass. But here's the problem, friends. The gospel isn't a buffet. You can't pick and choose which parts you'll have because the same Jesus who died as Savior lives as Lord. And the same Jesus who offers forgiveness of sins demands holiness of life. The same Jesus who came in humility to rescue will come again in glory to judge. And that is why Peter's so worked up about this issue. He's worried that his friends are going to be seduced into ignoring the promise of Christ's coming. And he knows what's at stake if they don't pay attention. That's why Peter's point in this letter is that we need to pay attention to the gospel truth we know. We need to pay attention to the promise of Christ's coming. Okay, so that's our first point. Our first point was kind of that wide-angle overview, right? He said, pay attention to the promise of Christ's coming. But now let's zoom in and go to the passage in chapter 1, verses 16 to 21. Here, Peter's going to unpack for us the first reason why we should pay attention to this promise. 
So our second point is pay attention because it's true. Now to help us see that, Peter's going to give us two sets of contrasts in these verses. The first one will be in verses 16 to 18, and the second in 19 to 21. So let's look at the first one in 16. He says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So did you see the contrast? He said, When we told you about Jesus coming, we weren't just going along with some story we heard somewhere. We actually saw something. We were there. Now, this is a huge point that I think is easy to overlook. But think about this for a minute. My guess is a lot of you have had a conversation something like this with your friends. Now, this will, this will connect maybe with you golfers out there. Now, imagine that you go up and talk to one of your buddies and say, hey, did you hear that Jerry hit a hole-in-one on the 16th this week? Your friend says, there is no way, man. There's no way. I heard that. You're right. But he just, he didn't do it. You're like, why, do you, why do you say that? It's like, well, look, you and I have both golfed with Jerry, and let's be honest, if he keeps it on the course, it's a success. And not to mention, the 16th is like the hardest hole there. There's no way that guy hit a hole-in-one. You're like, but he did. Like, no, listen, I asked the other guys too. Everybody says they heard the same thing, but we are confident Jerry did not hit a hole in one. Like, I, I think he did. Like, your friend is finally agitated and says, why in the world makes you think that he actually did it? Then isn't this the, the closer line where he says, because I was there and I saw it. Conversation over, right? I mean, it doesn't matter what you've heard and people speculating and I don't know if that could happen. That's the power of eyewitness testimony. It says, I was there and I saw it. And this is one of the core realities about Christianity. See, Christianity has inseparably linked itself to history. The events of Christianity happened at real times, in real places, and were seen by real people. The Bible claims these as historical facts. And if they could ever disprove these historical facts, the whole thing would fall apart. And that's significant because why? Because Christianity is not based on a story that doesn't matter if it's true. It's based on history and eyewitness testimony. So Peter's saying, you should pay attention to this message because we were firsthand eyewitnesses of what we're talking about. And I love it. The Apostle John says a very similar thing when he starts his letter, 1 John. There he says that the message he shares is that which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands. See, this idea of eyewitness account, it's all over the New Testament. The book's kind of got this earthiness and a texture to it. It's got sights and sounds and smells and weird details that could only come from actually being there. Peter's saying, I was there. And what I'm telling you I actually saw it. And it's important to notice that this wasn't just Peter, right? He says, we were eyewitnesses. This wasn't just one guy having some sort of trippy vision. This was multiple people reporting the exact same event. Okay, maybe that is, but what was it then that they saw and heard? Look at verses 17 and 18. It says, For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory. 
This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Okay, so what's going on here? Well, what Peter's referring to is an event that we read about in the Gospels. We call it the Transfiguration. And here's what happened there. See, one day as Jesus is finishing up his teaching with his disciples, he closes it by saying this, the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done, which sounds familiar to what Peter's been telling us. And then Jesus ends by saying this, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now, the disciples were probably just as confused as you are about what Jesus meant by that cryptic comment about seeing him come in his kingdom before they die. But about a week later, they found out. See, six days later, Jesus took Peter, James, and John up on a mountain, and while they were there, he was transformed or transfigured right before their eyes. The Bible says that his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. And then they heard a voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Now, you've got to stop there and say, okay, that was definitely a unique, amazing, unbelievable experience. But what was it all about? And why does Peter bring it up here to show that the promise of Jesus coming back is true? What's, what's the connection? Well, what Peter and the others saw on that mountain was the fulfillment of Psalm 2. So why don't you go ahead and flip over to Psalm 2 if you have your Bible with you. And while you're getting there, I'll set the stage a little bit. See, in Psalm 2, the enemies of God are plotting against him. But it says in there that God's not worried about this at all. Instead, it says he actually laughs at them. And then in verse 6, he's going to tell us why. So listen to Psalm 2, verse 6. God says, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Now, other translations make the connection to our passage even clearer when they say, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. So, the holy mountain. Peter uses that same fairly unique phrase in the Bible to describe where it was they saw the transfiguration. Psalm 2 then says that what's happening on the mountain is that God's installing his king, which would seem to indicate that in 2 Peter, Jesus is that king, right? But how can we be sure that we've got the right idea, that we've got the right guy being installed as king? Well, look at the next verse in Psalm 2. Verse 7 says, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. You are my son. That sounds a lot like what Peter heard, right? What Peter wants us to know is that what he and the others saw on that mountain was God installing his son Jesus as the true king. Okay, so that's, that's what he saw, but we still need to answer the question, why does Peter bring it up here to prove that Jesus is coming back? Well, here's how it supports that. Because what Peter saw that day was the most glorious sneak peek that the world has ever seen. Now, you know what a sneak peek is, right? It's when a, a select audience of people gets to see something before it's shown to the general public. It could be a movie, it could be a product, 
But that's what a sneak peek is. Well, that's exactly what Peter and the other apostles got here. They got to see a special viewing of Jesus in his glory. They saw the coming king the way he'll look when he comes back to be shown to the world. That's why Peter brings it up here. And that's why Peter says, pay attention to the promise. Pay attention, he says, because it's true. I've seen him. This is no myth. I've seen the coming king with my own eyes, and he is powerful, and he is glorious. So friends, please pay attention because it's true. That's why Peter brings it up here. But he also gives us another reason. He's got eyewitness testimony. That's one reason to believe it's true. But then in 19 to 21, let's look at another contrast. He says in 19, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So here's what Peter's saying. He says, you have the prophetic word written in your Bibles. It tells you there over and over about a king who's going to come again to bring justice and repay each one according to his deeds. Those who love and trust and obey him will be rewarded, and those who ignore and rebel against him will be punished. Now, God's even confirmed this prophetic word, Peter says, by showing some of us a sneak peek of the king. So you have this prophetic word, Peter says, and you know where prophecies come from. You know that it's not from some guy's interpretation. Here's our contrast. He says the prophecies didn't come from men. They came from God. Yes, they came through men, but their source is from God. This is why this is a big deal to Peter. He's saying, do you know why the Bible's prophecies are true? It's because God is true, and he spoke them. So let me just remind us this morning, this is the one who spoke the prophecies in this word. Psalm 18 says, this God, his way is perfect. His word proves true. Proverbs 30 says, every word of God proves true. Titus 1-2 refers to him as God who never lies. And Hebrews 6-18 tells us it is impossible for God to lie. Friends, that's who spoke the prophetic word about Jesus coming back. And that's why we can believe it's true. So Peter's telling his readers that the promise of Jesus' return is not only true because he saw the coming king with his own eyes, but he's saying you can read with your own eyes the promise made by the God who does not lie. Therefore, we need to pay attention to the promise of Christ's coming because it's true. So this morning, I just want to pause there a minute and just ask you pointedly, do you believe it's true? Do you believe that Jesus is really coming back as king to judge every man according to his deeds? We know that it's part of Christian doctrine. We know that. But I'm asking on a heart level, day in, day out, do you believe it's true? And I would say, I would speak to a couple different people here. First, friend, if you're here and you, you say, no, absolutely not, I don't believe in Jesus, I don't believe that's true. My question for you this morning would be simply, what is your source of truth? 
See, for those of us like Peter who follow Jesus, I would say this is my source of truth. This is where I look to to say what's true and what's not. And we all have that something. So my question for you is, if it's not the Bible, what is it? Is it you? Is it some other person you know? Because here's what scares me about that. It's when I contemplate the big questions of life of why are we here? What is this all about? And where is it all going? I know myself. And I have been wrong way too many times. And I have been confused. And I've even lied to myself. And I don't know enough, frankly, to be my source of truth. So when it comes to those weighty questions, I need a reliable source of truth. So if you're here this morning, I would just ask you, are you really okay knowing your own self and the times you've been wrong? Are you okay being the source of truth for something that important? I'd invite you to think about that. And for those of us here who say, yes, I believe that. I follow Jesus. I believe he's coming back. That is awesome. My question to you then is, okay, but do you live like it? When you think about your life this last week, if we were to all play it up here on the screen, would it look like that's a person that believes that Jesus is coming back? It's convicting for me. I'm guessing it is for a lot of us. So that's what I want us to think about. We need to pay attention to the promise of Christ coming because it is true. Okay, so so far we've seen Peter tell his readers to pay attention to the promise of Christ coming. And we said that paying attention means more than just knowing the right thing. It also involves responding the right way. Then Peter gave us the first reason to pay attention to the promise. That was because it's true. Now for our last point, we're going to see that Peter tells us also to pay attention because it matters. Now when we say that something matters, what do we mean? Well, typically we mean that there's, there's consequences. There's effects tied to whether or not we pay attention to this thing. Now, these can be either good or bad, right? Paying attention to something that matters can either protect you from something bad or provide you with something good. Like, think back to our tornado situation. Paying attention to the tornado siren matters because if you don't, you could be killed. So paying attention protects you from harm. But now we got on the other hand, imagine you're at a baseball game the announcer comes on and says, the person with your seat number needs to come to the office because you just won $1,000. Well, you still got to pay attention, right? But their paying attention provides you with something good. But in both circumstances, the key to paying attention is taking the appropriate action. So what Peter wants us to see in this last point is that paying attention to the promise of Christ's coming also has two sides to it. On one, it can protect you from something bad, and on the other, it can provide you with something good. So let's look at protection first. Peter wants us to pay attention to the promise because he knows that if we don't, we will fall deeper and deeper into our sin. We'll become just like the scoffers that we read about. If we ignore the fact that Jesus is coming back, you and I will we'll just simply do what we want, follow our own desires. Now to many, I know that first glance, that sounds like freedom, right? To do whatever you want. But that's exactly what Peter was talking about in 2.19 when he said, they promised them freedom. You can do whatever you want. But they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. See, we have this mistaken idea that freedom is getting to do whatever you want. But you ever ask, 
What if we want the wrong things? What if what I want will kill me? Is it really freedom? Am I really free just to pursue my pleasure if my pleasures are really poisons? That's what Peter's getting at here. He says that those who don't follow Christ and just follow their own sinful desires may think they have freedom, but here's what he says ultimately comes upon them. He says this freedom is bringing upon themselves swift destruction. He says their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. This present world is being kept, he says, until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. So friends, if you want to know why this promise matters, it matters because Jesus is coming. And when he does, he will destroy those who have ignored his offer of peace. He has mercifully made a way for anyone to be protected from the destruction of his wrath. And he made that way by being destroyed for us on the cross. See, when the tornado of God's wrath comes, it will destroy everyone and everything. The only ones who will be safe in that day are those who take refuge in the shelter of Jesus. There is safety only in him. So if you're here today and have not yet trusted Jesus, friend, I am begging you. Hear the warning siren of the gospel and take shelter in Christ. That is the only place you will be safe in the day the storm comes. So pay attention to the promise that he's coming back because it matters. Okay, but protection is not the only reason why you should pay attention to the promise of Christ's coming. Because it doesn't just protect you from something awful, but it provides you with something glorious. Look at chapter 1, verse 11 again. It says, For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The promise of King Jesus coming back and bringing you into that kingdom isn't just meant to be a tornado siren telling you to take shelter. It is that. But friends, it is so much more. Because, see, a storm shelter may keep you safe, right? But nobody wants to hang out in a storm shelter. It's designed to protect you from what's outside, not to provide your enjoyment for being inside. And my guess is, some of you kind of think Christianity is the same way. Maybe it protects you from something bad out there, but there's certainly nothing good to be enjoyed inside it. Friends, the promise of Christ's coming is not like that. It offers you both safety from danger and satisfaction of desires. This promise that the king will come back and bring his kingdom is meant to encourage us and to motivate us and to give us hope. Peter said in 119 that this promise is meant to be a lamp shining in a dark place. It's meant to show you where you're going and how to get there. This morning I'm wondering, do any of you feel in that dark place? I'm sure with a crowd this size, there's a, a myriad of ways that you feel darkness. For you, maybe you're feeling the darkness of pain and heartache over broken relationships. For some of you, I know that you're feeling the darkness of grief 
after recently losing someone you love. Some of you are feeling the darkness of of broken dreams, of just wanting to be married, wanting to be parents, wanting to have that job and provide for your family the way you wish you could. Some of you, your darkness is just figuring out how do I follow Jesus and my job? Friends, whatever your darkness this morning, there is a light. And that light is the promise that Jesus is coming back to make all things new. He says in 3.13 that according to this promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. He's saying there will be no more death, no more sickness, sin will be no more. But the best part of the kingdom is the king is there. We will be eyewitnesses ourselves of his majesty. We will see him as he is in all his power and glory. We will be with the one who saved us from destruction and who satisfies every desire of your hearts. Friends, the night may be dark, but the day will dawn and the morning star himself will rise and dispel the darkness. So pay attention to the promise of his coming because it matters. So this morning, to close, that's what Peter wants you to hear. He wants you to hear that you need to pay attention to the promise of Christ's coming. You need to shape your lives in light of that truth. You need to pay attention because it's true and because it matters. And it matters because the promise of Jesus coming back offers you both shelter from the storm of his wrath and provides you with a glorious kingdom. So friends, are you paying attention this morning? Are you living like Jesus is really coming and it really matters? Let me leave you with these words from Jesus himself in Revelation 22. He says, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. He who testifies to these things says, Surely, I am coming soon. He's coming, church. Will you pay attention? And would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you have not left us in the dark, but you have given us a lamp to show us what is true and what matters and how you have saved us and how you will save us. Father, I've I confess I feel often the temptation to ignore or be distracted, just to not pay attention. So I pray for myself and for every person here that today you would help us pay attention to this promise. I pray for those who have never trusted you that today for the first time they would pay attention. They would seek shelter in your son, the only place of safety. And I pray for those of us who have already done that, that we would be reminded of what glorious things come with your son when he comes and that we would pay attention and take heart so thank you for these truths and thank you that they're true thank you that they matter i pray this in jesus name amen after the service we'll have some folks up here who would love to pray with you or just to talk if you have questions or there's anything in your life that you could use prayer for now i would ask 
Church, would you stand? And I'm going to pronounce a benediction over you. College Park. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Go in peace. Have a great Sunday.